0: 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and I will read first 14 verses. So here Paul writes Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap, your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we, do not u- we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel." This is like the pastor's favorite passage. (laughs) I could do like a Jerry Maguire, show me the money! (laughs) I'm I'm kidding. (laughs) So last week, sorry, (laughs) last week we looked at uh, 1 Corinthians 8, all of 1 Corinthians 8, as um, Paul here uh, begins another section in 1 Corinthians as he looks and addresses this issue that the Corinthians raised up concerning things offered to idols. It is the second question that was sent to Paul from the Corinthian church. And Paul will be looking at this question in depth as he starts the answer in chapter 8 and kind of carries that on all the way through to chapter 10. But in chapter 8, Paul basically lays out the problem and gives you the solution. And then he's going to start to apply this and and apply it to his own life, and then show how it should apply into the lives of the Corinthians. Now the problem is not so much the idea of things offered to idols, but how one reacts to the things offered from idols, or offered to idols. Again, given the fact that Christians all grow in their faith, they grow in their knowledge, they grow in their sanctification at different rates, were that it were so that we would all kind of progress it the same way, and you know we could all look at each other and we'd all be in a nice line moving forward, but sometimes people move ahead in the line, sometimes people fall a little bit behind the line, and that's just the way it is. People progress in their faith at different rates, and it stands to reason people would have different reactions than to things offered to idols. Some would see it as no big deal, others see it as something, it's a scandal, and, it, and it's a scandal to them. Now, Paul gives the truth based on that principle that he talks about in verse, uh, I think it was one, yeah, one where he says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So the first thing to note is what is the truth of the situation? And Paul tells you the truth. He says, idols are nothing. They are nothing. And we looked at that, right? We looked at a passage, there's several of them in Isaiah, but we looked at one in particular which is kind of... In my mind, I, I, I like it because it's funny. It's, it's kind of a comic relief. It shows this guy who cuts down a tree, and he takes some of the wood, and he uses it to, you know, to heat up his furnace so he can you know, do his you know, work and everything, and he uses it to warm himself by the fire. He uses it to cook his food, and then what's left over, he carves into an image and then bows down and worships it. It's the height of stupidity. It's the height of the lostness of the fallen human being who uh, refuses to worship the Creator and instead worships and loves the creation. Idols are nothing. Paul goes on to say there's only one God. There's, there, you know, it's another thing that the prophets, particularly Isaiah, is very keen to get us to realize. There is one God and there are no others. That's what, that's what Jehovah says. I am the Lord, their God, your God. There are no other gods it 's not like every nation had its own God or every nation had its pantheon of gods that 's what they believe, but the reality is there are no other gods than Jehovah so therefore, because the idols are nothing, anything offered to them essentially is nothing. It becomes fair game. but within the Corinthian context, right some are coming out of pagan idolatry, some are coming out of that lifestyle of the whole sort of pagan religious worship situation in which you would have these meals that are offered up to some God, and then whatever else goes on after that, typically in Corinth, probably some kind of orgy or some kind of you know immoral activity they 're coming out of that, so their consciences might still be weak. you know think of a baby when a baby is born, right his head is still soft right. You know, the, the skull hasn't had time to harden, and, and you know that's like the conscience of these people coming out of pagan idolatry. It still needs to strengthen up; it hasn't strengthened up enough yet. So, if they see some someone eating food that has been offered to idols, it could wound their weak conscience. It could, as Paul says, they would be emboldened then to go and eat those things offered to idols. And, and it's not just eating the food, but like engaging again in that entire lifestyle. Paul goes on to say, food is food, right? And we're at liberty to eat or abstain as we see fit. But if our eating causes another brother to stumble in their walk of faith, then we're the sinner, okay? Now, a question, you know, a comment was brought up last week, you know, about the tyranny of the weaker brother, right? We don't want to fall into that. The point here is not that someone is offended that you're eating meat offered to idols, or not that someone is offended that you're doing something. In this day and age, that would be considered scandalous. It's whether or not that actually causes that weaker brother to engage in that sinful activity and to uh, fall back into a life of sin. There are a whole bunch of people out there that are offended that you might watch a certain movie. But it doesn't, I mean, it, it doesn't tempt them to go watch certain movies. They, they just don't want you to do it. Okay? That's the idea of not allowing your liberty to be at the mercy of the quote-unquote weaker brother. In fact, I would go on to say that if the weaker brother thinks he's the weaker brother, then he's not the weaker brother. (laughs) Um, But here, the idea of Paul is like, if what you do, if you exercise your liberty, and it causes another brother to stumble, scandal, right? That's what the stumbling block. If it causes him to fall back into sin, then you are the sinner. So then Paul offers a proposal here to solve the problem. Paul says, I will... Gladly sacrifice my liberty for the sake of the weaker brother. That's what he says in verse uh, 13, where he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Here, Paul's like saying, if I eat meat, if whatever I do makes my brother stumble, then I'm not going to do it. That's the point. If anything I do with my liberty entices another one to sin, causes one to stumble, then I will not exercise my liberty. And again, this all flows out of the, the principle we saw at the beginning of the chapter. Knowledge puffs up. You know, the fact that you know something to be true doesn't, you know, you still have to have that knowledge with love, right? Love builds up. And Paul here is operating. Even though I've got the knowledge, I know that the the meat offered to idol is nothing. Love for my brother requires me to relinquish my liberty in order to make sure my brother doesn't stumble. So now coming into 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 14, our passage here, it builds off what Paul has said in verse 13 of chapter 8. He's going to show now how his pattern of life, his pattern of living, and how he conducts himself in all the churches, and how he, this that what he says in verse 13 sort of serves as... Paul's um, way of living, right? That's how he reacts. That's how he behaves in multiple situations. And it's a passage in here in which Paul, I actually counted, he asks no less than 13 rhetorical questions between verses 1 and 14. 13 rhetorical questions, okay? Some of which the answer expected is yes, some of which the answer expected is no. But he's asking all these questions to build up. To a point. And the point is this again, Paul will gladly limit his rights in order not to hinder the advance of the gospel. Paul's goal, and he's gonna, we're going to see it, Lord willing, uh, in a couple of weeks when we look later in chapter 9. He says, um, where is it? Oh, uh, verse 16 For I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul felt a keen call in his heart to preach the gospel. So he's going to do whatever he can to promote the gospel. And if it means giving up his liberty, that's what he's going to do. He doesn't want to hinder the advance of the gospel. Okay, well moving along then. Starting in uh, verses 1 and 2, we're going to see Paul's position here. Uh, Paul begins the passage by looking at his position as an apostle. Look at verse 1 again, where he says, here we've got at least four uh, rhetorical questions here, right? Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? And are you not my work in the Lord? Now you look at those four questions, what do you think the answers to each of those questions would be? Yes, 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 and Yes. <laughs> Yes, I am an apostle. Yes, I've seen the Lord. Uh, yes, I am free, and yes, you are my work in the Lord. But he asked the questions, am I not an apostle? Yes. Apostle, of course, uh, Translated, it's transliterated from the Greek word apostolos, uh, which has, you know, has a basic general meaning and has a specific uh, technical meaning. The general meaning is just a messenger. So an apostle is just somebody you would send to deliver a message. Uh, Jesus is called an apostle. He is sent by God, one who is sent. Um, Now, it has a technical meaning, of course, which is applied to the twelve, minus Judas, and then add, is it Matthias? Yeah, Matthias. And then add Paul. Uh, So you've got a special meaning here of apostle as one sent by the Lord to do the work of the Lord, to build the foundation of the church. So in this sense, an apostle is one who is sent by Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Right? Ephesians 2 talks about how the apostles, along with the prophets, are the foundation with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, the, the load-bearing stone, the, the most important stone of that foundation. But the apostles, along with them, are foundational to the church. The church is built on the work of Jesus and the work of the apostles and the prophets. So Paul is indeed an apostle. We've talked about his conversion story in previous lessons, he was called specifically by Jesus. That's typically one of the criteria that you hear people talk about is what makes an apostle, well, one who was specifically called and sent by Jesus. You know, I mean, clearly the 12 were, right? Jesus gives them the great commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And he calls Paul, right? Paul's on the road to Damascus and he's going on to persecute Christians. And Jesus stops him in his tracks and tells him, you're going to be My apostle to the Gentiles. You're going to do what I tell you to do. So Paul is indeed an apostle. Now he is also free. As an apostle, of course, Paul is a slave to Christ. That's what he calls himself. Multiple times, pretty much every letter he writes, he begins by saying, Paul, and maybe his companions... A slave or a servant or a bond servant, depending on how you want to translate the word doulos, he is a slave of Christ. But also as an apostle, he is one who holds a lot of authority in the church. Right? The apostles were the ones that went out and developed the churches. They're the ones that you know, eventually end up saying you need to call elders and deacons in the church. You have to, you know, he, they, they, they have a lot of say in the church. So as such, he is free, from being under authority in the church. He has, you know, as an apostle, he would be probably in the, you know, if, if you were going to put it on a hierarchy, he'd be at the top of the food chain as an apostle. Now, it doesn't give him license to sin. It doesn't mean I'm free, I can do whatever I want, right? But it, it, it's, he certainly has freedom as an apostle. He has rights as an apostle. So he is free, he goes on, has not he seen, has not, he seen the Lord? And he certainly has. We just talked about that. Um, again, being someone who has seen the risen Lord Jesus often is considered a criteria for being an apostle. And Paul was definitely a witness of the risen Lord. Paul received ongoing revelation from Jesus, as chronicled in the book of Acts. When Paul spoke, He he spoke with the authority of the Holy Spirit. He spoke as an apostle, as one sent by Christ. And finally, Paul says, uh, Are you not my work in the Lord? And again, the answer to that question is is yes. The existence of the church in Corinth is a clear evidence of Paul's work in the Lord. Look now at verse 2. If I'm not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. In other words, look, if I'm an apostle nowhere else, at least I'm an apostle here in Corinth. You have seen my work in Corinth. We looked at this in Acts chapter 18. Paul labored in Corinth for 18 months. Paul developed that church. He started that church. He went through all the hassles and all the things that were going on in Corinth. And Paul started that church. He labored in that church if at least if i'm not an apostle anywhere else at the very least i'm an apostle here in corinth in fact he calls them the seal of his apostleship we've looked at that word before too seal among other things marks the authentication of something so the corinthians are the seal or the authentication or the certification of paul's work or apostleship in the lord So here, Paul begins this section in 1 Corinthians 9 by establishing his his apostolic sort of resume, his apostolic bona fides, if you will. He is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ with all of the rights that that position brings with it. And now he's going to talk about some of his rights. (laughs) My rights. My rights in verses 3 through 7. So he's like, yes, I'm an apostle. I, that is my position. I'm an apostle called by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what are some of the rights that apostles have? Well, he's going to go and describe those in verses 3 through 6. So my defense to those who examine me is this. Now, I'm just going to pause there in verse 3. Paul is constantly defending his apostleship to this, to this church. You know, when we get to 2 Corinthians, Lord willing, when we get there, there's going to be a lot of debate as to the challenges of Paul's authority in Corinth, his apostolic authority, and he's going to talk about what he calls the so-called super-apostles, and so on and so forth. So there were constantly those who were examining him, putting him under the microscope. You know, if you're really an apostle, why don't you do this, why don't you do that? You know, even just when we saw earlier with the divisions in the church, we already saw that, you know, even though there was a section, there was a, 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 a group that were devoted to Paul, there was a bunch of groups that were not devoted to Paul, <laughs> right? So, you know, let's say Paul had 30% of the people on his side, that means 70% of the people were not on his side, they went to other, other you know, well, we vote for Apollos, or we vote for Peter, or so on and so forth. So anyway, my defense to those who examine me is this, so here i 'm going to defend my position. do we not do we have no right to eat or drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? All right, so the first right Paul talks about here is the right to eat and drink now <laughs> You hear that's like you know, what the Corinthians were saying you can't eat or drink in our ch- you know you, you get some of these churches like you know they get the brand new sanctuary the new carpet and the new pews like don't bring any liquids or food into the you know into the sanctuary now that's not what they're saying okay when Paul says do I do I not have a right to eat and drink it is a, it is basically about receiving support from the Corinthians do I not have a right to have my basic needs met by you I am your apostle. I have established your church. Do I not have a right to receive my basic necessities from you? Paul labored greatly again in establishing this church, the church in Corinth. Doesn't he have at least a right to be supported by them? And Not only does an apostle have expectations to have his basic needs met, there's also the expectation to be able to to bring along a believing wife? Again, in verses 5 and 6. Right? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Again, you know, think of the strain ministry brings, right? particularly if you're like Paul, one who traveled everywhere. Okay? Paul was not one of those guys like the guys in Jerusalem that pretty much stayed there and ministered there, Paul was a, you know, a missionary. right? Think of missionaries in today's understanding of the word missionary. Paul went everywhere. Now, if you're a missionary of the church, and you went to a faraway land, and you left your wife and your kids behind, how much, you know, how much fun would that be? right? So your wife and your kids are left behind to try to struggle to support themselves while you're off six months, a year, two years, three, however long. So the idea would be why not bring your family with you? And if they bring their family with you, why, you know, the church ought to kind of support that bringing the family with with them, right? Again, the strain of missionary ministry, the strain of on marriages and on family, I mean, it's bad enough even just in a church in which a minister labors in one church and doesn't go doing a lot of traveling, right? You know, visitation, counseling, preparing for messages. You often become You know, you can have, you know, you hear of golf widows, right? You know, when golf season comes along and your husband's gone all the time because he's playing golf. Well, you know, that could happen also in ministry. You can have ministry widows because the minister is too busy serving the needs of the church and not, you know, not enough serving the needs of the family. So being able to travel with your spouse relieves the strain of being apart during ministry. Now, apparently, this wasn't an issue for the other apostles, right? Peter, Cephas, the brothers of the Lord. You know, they have, apparently, they had the right, but apparently, you know, the idea is Paul didn't. So, look, other apostles have their needs met and are able to bring their wives. They have this right, as do those who serve the Lord. Why, why not me, Paul is saying, in a sense. But apparently, he goes on here and says, or is it only Barnabas and I <laughs> who have no right to refrain from working? You know, we we saw this before too, right? Paul, when he when we looked at uh, Acts chapter 18, Paul, when he came to Corinth, did what, right? The first thing he does is he goes by the he goes by the riverside and, and sees um oh, that's Philippi, sorry, wrong wrong place. He goes to Corinth, but he ends up becoming a tent maker in Corinth when he meets Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth, right? He ends up becoming a tent maker. Which, you know, then that, that phrase has been used to describe those who support themselves in their ministry. You have a tent-making ministry. That means that you're not receiving your, your support from the church. you're working your, your own job outside of the church to support your needs so you could serve the church, a tent-making ministry. And, and Paul was a tent maker in Corinth, and he received, apparently no support from Corinth. This becomes, again, an issue, uh, at least in Second Corinthians for sure. And he talks about how you know, the Macedonians supported me. Uh, other church, I, in fact, I think he uses the words, I robbed other churches to support me so I wouldn't have to uh, burden you guys. So it's like, here he is. He, these things ought not to be. Paul's like, why is it only Barnabas and I, apparently, who have no right to refrain from working? We should be supported by you all in order to minister to you all. And then he illustrates this point with three more rhetorical questions in verse 7. Whoever goes to war at his own expense. Who plants a vineyard does not eat of its fruit. Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock. So again, soldiers right, who fight for the king are not expected to go out and buy their own swords and their own armor. Right? You're supposed to be supported. Right? A, a soldier doesn't try to work for his own food in his own shelter. If you're in the military, the military provides that for you. Same thing with a farmer, right, or a vineyard owner, a vine dresser, right? He plants a vineyard, does he not have a right to partake of the fruit of the vineyard? He labors in the fields, in the vineyard, does he not have a right to partake of some of the fruit? Again, the same thing with shepherds, right? They raise the sheep, don't they have a right to partake of the milk of the flock, you know, the, 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 again, the idea of these questions here is to lead to a point, and in the, in the, in the point is this. No one, especially apostles, should be forced to labor and not be supported and compensated for their labor. I mean, that's just kind of common sense, right? If, you, if you're producing work, if you're working for something, you should receive some kind of support for it. It makes no sense not to receive support for it. Now, moving on now, as Paul has laid out his rights, the idea that he should be supported from the Corinthian church, that he has the right to receive basic needs, even bring along. I mean, he's not married, but you know, if he were, he ought to be able to bring along a believing wife, should he so choose. He should be supported from the labors that he, he, he performs. Paul now gives an argument in verses 8 through 12, I'm going to call it the first half of 12. So here now, lest anyone think Paul is merely giving his opinion, this is just what I think, I believe it should happen. You know, In other words, you know, you've got what these people that do wish fulfillment. This is the way I think the world should be, so it has to be this way. You know, Paul is not doing that here. Paul now begins to quote and ground his principle and his argument in the law, verses 8 and 9. Now do I say these things as a mere man? That's that's the opinion. It's like, am I just giving you my opinion? Am I giving you what I think? Or does not the law say the same thing also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? So in other words, this isn't just me talking, this is a principle found in the old testament scriptures. Well, in Paul's day, the scriptures. <laughs> there was no New Testament yet, it was being written. This principle of being you know, supported in your labors is a principle found in the Bible. He quotes from Deuteronomy 25.4. And the idea behind this verse is that even the oxen get to eat while they work. They get to, you don't muzzle the ox as he's treading out the grain. You allow the oxen to take a break every now and then and eat and replenish his strength and keep going. You don't muzzle them from that. And Paul here, his point is that the law here isn't just about oxen. Now, it's not to say that it's not about oxen, but it's like it's not only about oxen. It's not to deny the original context of the passage of the humane treatment of animals, but oftentimes, even in the law, we find principles that are applied to our daily lives. And that's what Paul then makes that point in verse 10. So is it about oxen God is concerned, verse 10, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, that this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. Ultimately, the law of God was given for the benefit of God's people. And here the principle of not muzzling an ox while it's treading out the grain applies to God's people. In fact, Jesus says himself in Luke 10 verse 7, right, "The laborer is worthy of his wages. You don't labor and not expect to get paid for it. We're not communists, brothers. <laughs> this is you know, a laborer is worthy or uh, worthy of his wages. And if an ox is allowed to eat while it works, surely a laborer is worthy of his wages. So taking this to its logical conclusion, apostles then are to be supported in their labors. And he follows up with two more illustrations here. The one who plows and the one who threshes does so in hope. And the hope is that I get to partake of some of the fruits of my labor. It would be counterproductive to not be rewarded or compensated for your labors. Now Paul brings the argument home here in verses 11 and the first half of 12. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? So all of this that Paul has been saying up to this point leads to the statement in verse 11. Paul and his companions who have labored in the church at Corinth and in all the other churches... Are sowing spiritual seed. They are sowing into the lives of the people that they work with. They are sowing into the lives of the people to whom they preach the gospel and who to whom they disciple, to whom they 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 labor with and, and counsel with and love. They are sowing spiritual seed, seed that will produce fruit that is good for eternity. They are they are in a way sort of uh, you know, doing work that that will carry on into eternity. So, is it any, is it a big thing then to ask? Can we receive a little bit of material compensation? We are sowing into you spiritual seed. Is it such a great thing to ask that we get a little bit of material reward for it? So, when talking about the divisions in the church, we mentioned the culture in Corinth, right? How the teachers of the age, the sophists and the others, the philosophers of the age, would teach and expect a wage for their teaching. And that's, in a way, that was sort of how you gauged how good and important a teacher was, how much of a following he had and how much he charged for his services. So when Paul didn't charge for his services, they didn't think he was a very good teacher. He didn't take a wage for them because he didn't want to appear as peddling the gospel. He didn't want to be Seen as one who sort of sells the gospel for a profit. But here, what Paul is saying is not a contradiction. Paul chose not to receive a wage, but it is expected, especially for an apostle, that the laborer is worthy of his wages. Others have taken advantage of this right, and Paul and his companions are even more deserving, right? If anyone's more deserving of receiving wages for his labors, It's not the sophists in Corinth. It's Paul who is sowing into their hearts spiritual seed. So now here, Paul brings his argument to a conclusion in the second half of verse 12 and through to verse 14. Where we see, just look at the second half of verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. So after all of those, <laughs> everything was leading up to this point. Okay? So everything from chapter, or verse 1 to the first half of verse 12 was leading up to this point, which flows again out of chapter 8, verse 13. His main point, all the rhetorical questions, all of the arguments point to this conclusion. Even though Paul's an apostle, and even though that position affords him certain rights, nevertheless, Paul forgoes his rights. This is where he started in chapter 8, verse 13, and now he's finally come back full circle. We have not used this right. Freely, he freely decides to not use this right. Again, in the church, the gospel is the main thing. Our mission statement comes from the Great Commission to go out into the world and make disciples. This is done through the preaching of the gospel. And Paul didn't want anything getting in the way of the main thing, right? You've heard it said, right? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. <laughs> so you don't want to let anything get in the way of the main thing. And if his liberty, if Paul decided to say, I'm going to exercise my freedom here, I'm going to demand my rights, if Paul would have done that, and that would have hindered the gospel, then Paul would have been sinning. He would have he been remorseful of that. If his liberty in any way was a hindrance to the preaching of the gospel, Paul says, I will let that go because I want to keep the main thing the main thing. He would gladly lay aside those rights for the furtherance of the gospel. Unfortunately, as we see in our day and age, right, in the church today, some churches across this country even, it is the gospel that is seen as a hindrance. (laughs) Right? It's not that we don't let anything hinder the gospel, it's that the gospel kind of becomes a hindrance, right? It becomes a hindrance to church growth. If your main thing is getting the pews filled, then you're probably going to sacrifice some part or maybe even all of the gospel at some point. If your main thing is to build a, a following, to get a large following on Twitter and social media, and, and again, to have the churches full the gospel can become a hindrance to that. Paul would not let anything hinder the gospel. And now, finally, in verses 13 and 14, Paul returns to his earlier thesis. Look at verses 13 and 14. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Again, we, we mentioned this earlier, but it was expected in Old Testament times that the priests would be supported through the offerings of the people. Again, that's how they supported themselves. They, they were not given any inheritance in the land, but they were chosen by God to serve in his temple. The Levites were specifically chosen by God as his portion. In fact, they were, if you look at the book of uh, Exodus and, and, the, and the Pentateuch, they were actually chosen in place of the firstborn. So, I mean, everything that came first out of the womb was to be dedicated to God, and God said, I'll take the Levites for the firstborn. So the, the Levites were chosen specifically to serve in the temple. As such, then, they would receive a portion of the tithes that the people gave as well as some a portion of the animal sacrifices. Their support was to be given to them through the offerings and through the, 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 the work and labors of the people. And then Paul takes that and applies that principle of the Old Testament to those who preach the gospel. Again, the workers worthy of his wages. Those who minister the gospel should be supported by those who benefit from that ministry. Now, Paul's point is that he personally would be willing to forego that for the sake of the gospel, but the principle still holds. Those who labor in the Lord should receive their their uh support from those who benefit from that labor. So that's that's it. That's the passage here this morning, verses nine, uh, 1 through 14 of chapter 9. Uh next time we'll pick up in verse 15. I'm not sure how far I'm going to go. I know the handout says verse 18. Yeah, I, I'll certainly make it through 18. I just don't know if I'm going to go further than verse 18. No promises. But Uh, Next time, for me at least, will be, though, in two weeks.